When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Wisden Cricket Weekly Podcast. England secured a quietly impressive series win over Bangladesh this week as they looked to nail down their squad for the ODI World Cup later this year. The Women's Premier League has started off with a bang in India and Shaheen Afridi has reinvented himself as a number six in the PSL, which continues to thrill. We will also be trying to make sense of the CDC hearing into the Yorkshire racism scandal. I'm Yaz Rana and with me this morning is Katia Whitney, Ben Gardner and Phil Walker. It has just stopped snowing here at the Oval with the first game of the county championship less than a month away. Not long to go, folks. Um, Let's start with that series in Bangladesh. Ben, followers of English cricket might not appreciate this because of England's excellent record there, but winning an ODI series in Bangladesh is not to be sniffed at. Yeah, in a way, it's almost a a good thing for for England, or at least their reputation uh, among, or the reputation of this win um, among you know, people watching that they lost the last game in the manner they did. It's just a reminder that Bangladesh are quite good at cricket and that winning there is not an easy thing to do. And equally, I think Bangladesh will be quite disappointed looking back at those first two games that they didn't put up a better showing. I mean, what, since 2015 World Cup, the only two sides to have won there are England sides captained by Joss Butler. And that includes India going there twice, a week in India earlier this year, but also this was a, a weakened England side. So yeah, it is a a good win and also checked kind of the, the right boxes, I guess. You had uh, Quicks who, you know, sort of coming back into the frame kind of bowling bowling well. Um, you had two batters who needed to shore up their places in that squad doing so with excellent hundreds. Um, and and yeah, just, just from, you know, it wasn't very long ago that we were looking at England's ODI side thinking like the, the, the World Cup preparation was kind of hard to work out what the final squad would boil down to. There were loads of players in the frame that... Uh, they weren't that sure of their first eleven. That is Stokes going to retire, that sort of thing. It's slowly coming into focus, I think. The squad, at least. The eleven is still quite hard to work out, I think. And I guess we'll talk about that a bit more. But um, their World Cup preparations are going quite well, I guess. Which is good because, you know, they're basically over. I mean, by the time they they play their next ODIs, I think they'll have named their provisional squad for the World Cup. So... Yeah, I mean, it's the first time that Mark Wood and Joffre Archer have played together in pretty much two years, which was obviously exciting. Is um, it a squad of 15? Yeah. So what, 13 pretty much nailed down, you would think? Yeah, pretty much. So Bearstone, Milan, Roy, Root, Brooke, Butler, Livingston, Moeen, Archer, Wood, Curran, Wokes, Rashid are the 13 that I think people are assuming okay. if it will go. Um, and then the other two... Probably another quick mm. and a top order batting option, but I've also seen suggestions it could be two bowlers. I think I would like to see that, that there isn't really another top order batting option in that squad at the moment, right? If you look at if you look at top five options, you can I guess you can push Butler two five, and then have Livingston or Moeen at number six. So I guess but it's tricky because England likes having an all rounder. That's the thing about the eleven. Like you, there's quite a lot of players you think like oh they kind of have to play, and actually when you get to it, it's like. Where do they all fit in? Like you look at Bairstow and more obviously the, the opening partnership. Root is Joe Root. Milan is, you know, England's form ODI batter. Brick is, you know, the form batter in world cricket. Joss Butler is Joss Butler. But then you... You can't so, play all of them. Exactly, because... And that's you, even before you, you get Stokes back. Yeah, exactly. If, yeah. Uh, and that's... And but England want an all-rounder in the top six. So that's quite tricky. You'd probably say Milan might be the unfortunate one to miss out or he goes up to open. Um, so yeah, there are questions over the 11, but kind of good questions, I suppose. It's more... How do we fit in all our very good players rather than we don't really know how to... If if you were going to pick the team now and you were looking at, you know, seven or eight games on those pitches, some of which will be flat, some of which will be challenging, would you prefer, assuming that Bairstow's a lock at, as an opener, as he should be, 
Do you go with Milan or do you go with Roy? I think they've probably got similar problems. There's a stat about Milan that I found out today that after Bangladesh, he now has more hundreds than he does fifties, but more ducks than he does hundreds in ODI cricket. And I think you can see similar problems with Roy and him being back in form, but also the consistency problems. I think they will go with Roy. I would probably go with Milan, given the form he's been in and the kind of prolonged form he's been in rather than Roy's recent form. But it's, you know, can you drop Jason Roy, really? Is it worth dwelling as well on the, just the merits of the 200s? Probably shouldn't read too much into two individual innings, but it does show, I think, the different strengths the two have. Milan's was a sort of a brilliant innings of, in terms of innings construction, understanding the situation. And that's the thing about Milan is he just knows how to make runs. I mean, that's what comes with making so with having having all that experience with making you know 10,000 first class runs you will have faced a variety of situations a variety of conditions and your your livelihood is on making runs more often than you don't essentially uh, and that is what Milan is 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 very very good at and there had been questions about him in spinning conditions um, and he in a way overcame them and this was this was a match winning this was this was better than the Roy's thing I would say overall but it also the thing with Roy's innings is that it was like kind of classic Jason Roy, but with the sort of a, a twist that he played spin very well, but it was still sort of that kind of proactive scoring at nearly a runner ball, uh, playing those, adding sweeps and reverse sweeps, kind of taking the game to Bangladesh. So I think you kind of saw the uh, the two strengths of, of either of either player in there. I guess from what Matthew Mott has said, that might lean possibly into Milan's favour and that they recognise that the tracks won't all be belters at the World Cup that you have to win on a variety of surfaces that it's maybe about sort of toning down that aggression somewhat as they kind of had to do a little bit at the end of the 2019 World Cup as well um uh so that might speak in Milan's favor but yeah that that'll be really close but equally there's so much that could change between now and then in terms of injury a little bit in terms of form like a, if if someone goes through the summer is in and, and is really struggling that could come into it or if someone you know this time last year, we wouldn't have said Harry Brook would be anywhere, would be that close to the England World Cup squad. And now we're kind of thinking he's a lock. Uh, could a similar kind of thing happen? Could they kind of pick someone for the ODI series who isn't in the World Cup squad and they have a stormer and that comes into play? Someone like Will Jacks? I don't know. Well, like you said, it depends what they want from opening partnership, right? And England's ODI batting dominance has been built off that ultra-aggressive opening partnership with Roy and Bairstow. But A, like you said, will that work in Bangladesh? And B, is that opening partnership the same as it was before 2019 in the build-up to 2019 when they were so dominant. We don't know what Best is going to be like when he comes back. We don't know how Roy's form is going to hold up even with these 200s. And like you said, Milan's 100 was better than Roy's 100. So a change of approach might work better in terms of the pitches in India and in terms of where England are at right now as an ODI batting unit compared to where they were four years ago. Mm. It's a weird one in the comparison to 2019 because I think that the squad depth is actually better now than it was four years ago. Like if, you, if you're looking at the squad and who's might not get into the squad, you've got those 13. And then if you only have one more quick ahead of that, someone like Ollie Stone, Reese Topley or Sakiba Mood isn't making, potentially two of those three don't make the squad. And then you've got Billings, Hales, um, Salt, Duckett. Vince, Duckett. Lots of good players, players who would earn their stripes at that level in a World Cup, but probably won't make, won't make the cup. So you're absolutely right. The, the, the strength and depth in the 50-over side is terrifying, really. Um, I, personally, I was really pleased for Milan because he occupies a peculiar position in English cricket. He's a bit of an enigma. Um, he, he's never fully uh, become ensconced in any of the formats, but he's never done badly in any of them, and he's often done very well in, in, in a number of them, right? He's got four tonnes in 18 games in ODIs, albeit he's also got a few blobs, as you say, cash up in T20 T20 internationals at one point he was number one in the world but the rankings were spurious and so that was sort of held against him almost um but even so you know I mean his, his numbers are still very impressive uh also strike rate in ODI's cricket as well you know he's going basically at a run of ball 93 93 and a bit and test cricket you know he's made he's made he made a an ashes hundred so he's always done okay but I think he's been conscious of his place slightly in the kitchen at the party and that innings was probably, albeit in quite a low-profile game of cricket, in truth, um, that was probably his most dominant one-man performance for England. And he he said that afterwards that you know that was probably one of his best ever days out as a as a as a cricketer because 
he dominated that innings uh, and without him they'd have fallen over like a pack of cards. Mm, just just on his winter, England have had three ODI series that have been quite hard to really pay attention to. His Bangladesh series happened, what, 28 hours after the test match in New Zealand, one of the best test matches of all, all time. In uh, The Australia series happened five minutes after England won the World Cup and the South Africa series was a rearranged series from ages ago. So three series that no one really wanted to play. Some of the players literally said that with the Australia series. Milan has got his head down. He's got big hundreds in all three of those series and kind of like how he forced his way into the T20 side when he wasn't really supposed to be in that either. He's just demanded selection. And also Um, he could have gone and taken money elsewhere, presumably, mm. right? You know, no one knocks Alex Hales for deciding against touring and playing in in these games uh, because there was money to be made elsewhere. And, you know, we live in the, in the new pragmatism and everyone accepts that. But David Milan, he's always there. He's always totally devoted to to the to his hopes of one day being fully, fully accepted as a part of this England side. Personally, I've really grown to like him a lot as a player in recent years and as a bloke as well. Um, and I'd be, I mean, he's almost certainly played his way into that squad now. And, and you know, it will come down to form. And uh, Jason Roy is a, is a is a world beater on his day. The question is how many days he will have across nine or ten games. But at the moment, I'd, I'd have an inkling for Milan to to open us, assuming that Besto does come back fully fit and so on. Yeah, I, I think it's so difficult. I mean, the, it one, is difficult, the, the, the one thing that we haven't really talked about yet is when you get to the makeup of the eleven. There's one there's one guy who, if Stokes isn't back, who hasn't played recently, we, is kind of assumed to be in that eleven. Is is Liam Livingston? And Liam Livingston at six and Moeen Ali at seven or the other way around didn't really work for England in the summer. Um, those are two guys who are destructive white ball players who earn big, big money in the IPL, widely regarded as two of the best T20 players in the world. But I think there are serious questions and marks around them as ODI top six players. And one of them has to bat six um, without Stokes in the 11. And that, especially on the pitches you're likely to get in India, I do just think that that looks quite a vulnerable side. You compare that whoever bats at six there to 2019, we had Josh Butler at six. I'd looked at the India team that won in 2011 in India. You had uh, Dhoni, Yuvraj and Rainer as your five, six, seven. And they'd rotate that depending on match situations, etc. That's That's quite a big difference what England have there. And that I, is I the 100% big difference. I 100% agree with you there, right? And Moeen Ali, for all that I adore him, in the real clutch moments, I'm not sure he's, he's the sort of cricketer that you absolutely rely on when the pressure is through the roof. Um, Liam Livingston's still getting going and he's a maverick and he's an outlier of a, of a cricketer in every way and that's what makes him so interesting. But you, with, there's very scant evidence that he's kind of a cold-blooded killer at the end of an innings. Butler, you, you want to bat him at one, two, three, four, five and six. Of course you do. But I wonder if, looking at it now, he might even revert down a place or two into the Dhoni position, possibly even as a floater, but possibly in that number six position as the person that you're going to rely on when push really does come to shove. And I can see the logic of breaking up. If they're both in the first 11, and especially on Indian pitches, you'd expect they would be breaking up Livingston and and, and Mo and, and having Butler in there in the middle between them. But then the difficulty is if Stokes comes back, then you lose your third spin option that England also want to have. So there's kind of like no... There's no simple way around it. Yeah, um, I, I think I think the, the the fact that England are looking more and more secure and like they have more of a squad nailed down for me, I think makes it less likely that Stokes will come back. Yeah. That felt to me like it would be almost like if England desperately needed him and the team didn't really make sense without him. I mean, obviously, yeah, there are going to be issues with the eleven, but it's not going to be the same as saying. Uh, like, you know, putting up the bat signal and saying, Stokes, we need you. So I, don't, I don't think he'll come back. I think it'll be, it's too obvious for him to come back. So I just don't think he'll do it. What do you, what do you think about that? He's, got, he's on one knee. He's going off the IPL. The ash isn't far away. We're worried about the state of the knee. And then <laughs> he might miss a World Cup. The IPL thing is, is tricky. It's a tricky one. He knows his body better than we do. He has... Uh, not bold, not bold himself as a captain when he's been perfectly able to, and he did that last summer. So we don't know exactly where he is at. Um, I think he's grown up enough to recognise that he's he picks up his IPL contract and he's still useful in the side, fielding at deep mid wicket and 
coming off every four or five times with the bat number five or even opening maybe who said who knows he's done all the all the different options in the IPL and not bowling a ball I think I think he will he he has such such autonomy over everything in cricket that uh, he may well not bowl a delivery during the, the whole of the IPL, um, play for three hours every three or four days, uh, and then then he'll be fine. I, I think he's. I think we've got to trust him to to be sensible here, uh, and I hope that's the case. Certainly, if he turns up crocked for the Ashes, having you know given it his all for whichever count, whichever IPL franchise he's playing for this time round, then. It, it starts to look very empty, but I, I think he's he's balanced these balls for so many years now, and he's always had problems with his knee. Uh, so I don't envision it being that big a problem. And he's also talked about prioritising the build-up to the test summer, regardless of how well his franchise So he'll, he'll be coming home early. He'll be preparing for that Ireland test match. Uh, so yeah, I don't see it being that big a deal. But then, look, if he... If he goes over on his knee in the first week, then it starts to look a little bit hollow. But I don't envision that happening. I think the main point is, like, England need Ben Stokes a hell of a lot more than Ben Stokes needs England, right? And as soon as you try and control a character like Ben Stokes, then that's when you're going to lose him. So you kind of have to, you know, he's big enough and old enough that you have to trust him to get on with it. And if he doesn't, well, then maybe, yeah, you do have a conversation. But if he can walk, he's playing for England, right? So I don't think it's that much of a problem, really. I think it's kind of overblown and this whole thing of sport is inequality it's absolutely not inequality you know Ben Stokes is better than everyone else so Ben Stokes kind of gets to do what he wants mm. um, and it's not just England it's ODI cricket and the ICC World Cup need Stokes more than Stokes needs yeah exactly them. exactly yeah. you've got like it's all about brand and all, all that kind of stuff and as long as he can walk out on the field he's going to walk out on the field and he's going to do something amazing because he's Ben Stokes the fact that he's playing in the IPL and may or may not hurt his knee while doing so doesn't really change that to be honest yeah I would imagine look if Rob Key had the choice and there was no consequences to it then he'd probably say come home and convalesce for a few few weeks Ben but those days are long long gone and nobody is as Katya says no one is going to going to look him in the eye and say you can't you can't do this because he is the emperor just just going back to the makeup of the England ODI side, I was I was thinking that one potential game changer is Joe Root's bowling. If Root bowls a lot, then you don't need Livingston and Moeen. You need Livingston or Moeen. Then you can put Butler at six and then you can play all the batters that we were trying to squeeze into one team earlier. Yeah, and that Harry, just sounds like a better team, doesn't it? Harry Brooks got <laughs> Kane Williams in his back pocket as well. <laughs> um, can I just say one more thing on, on the... I found a thing about Billings and Milan really interesting, basically, because... As you say, Milan's just basically played three series, got 300s in the team. Uh, Billings, I can imagine him looking at that thing like, hang on, this was, this at one point, this looked like my position to lose. What's happened here? Like at the end of 2020, he um, he was brilliant in that Australia series that England lost. Um, made an amazing 100, made a 50 to end the series. He's had five ODI knocks since then, one of which was a very good 70 in that Australia series just gone. Uh, and yet he's kind of sort of, on the fringes of the conversation, not even on the fringes of the squad, really. Um, having averaged, I think, 50, striking at about 90 since the last World Cup. And it just shows how, how in a way, how fickle and strange cricket can be and how fickle and strange the calendar can be. Uh, and also how, like, how difficult it is to make choices in, like, in, in the cricketing world as it is, basically. Like, I wonder if Billings is looking at having chosen to play the PSL over the Bangladesh series. He gave an interesting interview to quick info um talking about his choice of that saying that he's you know he's sat on the bench a lot and that's been a theme through the interviews he gave a, a, a interview to joe uh a while ago saying that he's he was what he's 28 year old bit feeling like he's played a 24 year old amount of cricket kind of thing that um he has just done a lot of time carrying drinks he doesn't want to do that equally i think if he goes to bangladesh i think he plays that series probably ahead of vince and then who knows what he might have done and where he might now be because you know with Milan, it's only nine games. It's kind of, you know, got got him into the position he is now. I guess the one thing he'll look at is he's the same age now that Milan was ahead of the 2019 World Cup. So there's there's nothing stopping him from having a similar sort of run and being involved for, for 2027. Nothing can still happen. The funny thing on Milan is just that I'm really happy for him as well, just because of how the 20, how the T20 World Cup ended for him. Like that was so much of his career was geared towards that, you know, his position in the T20 side, he was supposed to come to Australia, those flat tracks dominate, didn't quite go for him with the bat and then he gets the, 
the the injury in it it's such a minor injury as well almost or you'd almost feel uh better if it was like a not not better if it was a bad injury but the timing just felt so cruel that you get just like the minor tweet that keeps you up for literally just three days basically because he then plays the first ODI after that World Cup um and so from a personal point of view felt really for him then and so if he gets another chance to have his World Cup moment which I think his career deserves having basically been one of England's top 10 batters in all three formats for about 10 years but that never quite being enough for him to be uh, in a first choice side for a long period of time and be absolutely established in any of those. Yeah, just going back to Milan and, and Billings is, is an interesting comparison. I think it's crucial to mention that Milan's got a central contract. He's got a. He's not one of the full contracts, but that makes it a, a, a simpler decision, I guess. Could, could I just add on, on, on Billings as well? I sort of agree with Ben that uh, I think if if we can assume that Stokes, well, let's imagine that Stokes isn't, isn't going to feature. So then you look at the. I agree that I think we need one more top six batter in there. I think his Billings versatility probably. Makes him the slight favourite for me, ahead of a Hales, ahead of a Vince, ahead of a Salt. I think he can play different different versions of, of different roles. You know, he can go up top if needs be. He has experience against the white new ball. That's how, where he began at Kent. And obviously, he's a good finisher in there as well. He runs hard between the wickets. He's a useful reserve keeper, etc., etc. And he's as a subfielder. Yeah. yeah. And also, you know, that weird little intangible, that, good in the dressing room thing, you know, he's, they like him um, with good reason, you know, so uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, if Stokes isn't in the in the, the frame, then he might get one of those last couple of, couple of mm. places. That, that interview he did is, is really interesting. He also talked about how he has turned down a, a lucrative IPL deal to play for Kent in the county championship. He really wants, he's really enjoyed his initial taste of test cricket. I think he's played three test matches now. Um, and he sees that there's a potential avenue to get back in the squad at least by scoring loads of runs in April for Kent. So kind of fair yeah. play to him and all and that. He's got a lot of stick, unfairly, for how he's prioritised um, various competitions in the past. Right. And now he's he's playing for Kent over KKR. Well, well, as you know, we did a captain's roundtable on Zoom the other week uh, and we had four county captains, one of which was Sam Billings and he... He called in from Pakistan at midnight in his hotel room. Um, if anybody's labouring under the misapprehension that he doesn't care too much about county cricket or domestic cricket or even English cricket because he can earn money around the world, it's dispelled within seconds of this conversation. I mean, this is a bloke who uh, is the archetype of the cricket obsessive and thinks about every little detail of English cricket, uh, has views on the carve-up of the domestic system the structure the itinerary pitches grounds dressing room culture all the all of it he has opinions on all of it and they're all very well thought through and they come from a place of real love so you know that perception is wrong when Mm. it comes to him um ben just finally on this series how how do we think bangladesh are looking ahead of the world cup england got well and truly shakibed in the final game, he's still quite good. He scored 75 and then took a four for. In those conditions, this is probably Bangladesh's best bet of getting to a World Cup semi-final. Yeah, I think, I think that's fair. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say that they are favourites for one of those top four spots, but I imagine they will be in around the mix, as will lots of teams, to be honest. I think it being in India makes it a bit of a leveller in a way in that, you know, Sri Lanka might well fancy having a decent chance, see Pakistan will be one of the favourites for that semi-final spot. And then you look at Australia, New Zealand, England and India. Like you've got quite a lot of teams there who will uh, push for it. And Afghanistan will no doubt trouble a few teams as well. So I think it'll be really good. But Bangladesh, uh, yeah, they've got, uh, as I say, I don't think they showed the best of themselves in this series. Um, they've got some really good batters in the likes of Lytton Das. Shakib is obviously Shakib and is amazing. Uh, they've got, you know, the, the fizz when he's on his day is is very hard to play. Uh, I think I think they'll be pretty good. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
With the start of the cricket season arriving in only a matter of weeks and our lovely English weather being less than ideal at the moment, it's only fair that the Wisden shop is giving away a free limited edition Wisden cricket sweater worth £95. All you must do to enter the giveaway competition is to visit the link in this episode's description and answer some cricket-related questions. Entries close on Monday the 13th of March, so don't miss your chance to enter. Australia won the third test in India to keep that series just about alive. It was a comprehensive nine-wicket win in indoor. The pitch was rated poor by the ICC. Very, very few pitches are given that rating. There was considerable turn from the first morning, but perhaps most concerningly in the eyes of the ICC, there was inconsistent bounce from that first morning as well. Matt Kuhneman in his second test match took five for 16 in the first innings and Nathan Lyon took an eight for in the second after a quiet first test. He's done really, really well. Phil, do you think Australia will view this series as, as almost a missed opportunity? It's a it's a fragile India side. Australia got various decisions probably wrong in terms of not just selection but game plan in the first two test matches. It's just an it's just a vulnerable India side and test matches go so quickly on those pitches. It doesn't actually take you having that good a period of play to suddenly be miles on top in a test match. That they had that moment in the second test where India were Seven down, only halfway to Australia's first innings. And admittedly, they're smallish scores. Uh, and then they ended up losing a, no more than 24 hours later by nine wickets or whatever it was. But they've definitely had their moments. You know, dropping Travis Head for the first test is a classic, one for the ages. Mm. But also, you said in your intro there, just keeping the series just about alive. The series is well alive. But the, the Border Gavaskar trophy is, is gone. Ah, but if you, if you take a 2-2... Two, two, in India, when they've they've won what 50, forty-five of in fifty-two or fifty-three games or whatever it was going into this series, if you if you take two games off India, that is an extraordinary achievement, really. And you're right; even if they were to nick that final Test match, they would still be slightly, slightly narky with themselves, cranky at certain moments that they could have maybe executed a little bit better. There were certain sort of hinge moments that were peculiarly un-Australian. I mean, going back to that, we spoke about it before, that, but that Pat Cummins spell on the first evening after they'd sort of scrambled to 180 or whatever it was, and then by the close, Sharma had already made his mark. Um, so, yeah, no doubt they will be frustrated. But if they, if they can get out of, that, out of it with 2-2, that's, that's an extraordinary result, really. And, of course, that... That win ensures their place in the the WTC final here at the Oval in a few months' time. In the snow. In the snow. You did say on the podcast about a couple of weeks ago that, you know, the crocuses are out mm. and the blossoms on the on the trees and all of that. It's not, yes. Yeah, we're still well, end of days well, out since, there. Since then, England have lost a test match. Australia have started <laughs> winning a test match. So <laughs> things have been going downhill. But no, yeah, I think, I think your reading of it's right, yeah. Uh, and certainly India have looked vulnerable, but then all teams are going to look vulnerable on pitches that are skewed dramatically and out of the favour of, of the batters. Uh, and it really does bring that conversation that we had the other week very much to bear now when you see Kohli getting 20s and 20s and 20s and you don't even really notice the scorecards anymore. If somebody gets up to 40, then you, oh, well played. This is not test cricket as the great Indian players of the past have recognised. This is not the test cricket that arguably a lot of people want to see inside and outside of India. Uh, and that third test match was extreme. Um, and I'm glad the ICC, I spoke to Wazim Khan, who's the ICC GM, um, hours before they released the their official verdict on the pitch. And, and I asked him about the pitches and he said that... You know, as an organisation, they are very aware of this, you know, and, and he made the case for Raw Pindi having been overturned back to adequate. And I didn't agree with him on it, but I, but this is at least a conversation that they what are... What was his case? <laughs> that picture's a disgrace. Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying, I'm not saying. It will come out in the wash. But but this is, he recognises as they do that, you know, pitches are absolutely the bedrock, literally the bedrock of of of, of good, powerful zestful watchable test cricket and and what we saw at indoor uh was a an inversion of all of that really yeah can i just say this is the first time i've actually cared about the world test championship okay. and, and the final because if australia do nick that last test match and sri lanka managed to beat new zealand 2-0 mm -hmm. however unlikely that might be 
India won't qualify for the final. And then there might be a conversation to be had because it will be the pitcher's fault, right? If they prepare another rank turner in Ahmedabad and the match is over again in two and a half days and India lose, then you can say that the pitchers lost India a place in that World Test Championship final. And I think that'll be a really interesting discussion to be had. Um, and I'm sure it'll be very well-tempered mm. and, you know, evenly discussed. Well, let's have, let's have it now. I mean, Ben, you've done a bit of research on how pitches have changed in India over the last, what, five years? Se- seven, really, or eight. Should I do the quick history lesson? <laughs> go for so it. it goes, I think you're going to do it anyway. <laughs> it go, yeah, it goes all the way back to Kohli's first series as India captain at home, which was against South Africa. And this was the South Africa side that hadn't lost on the road since 2006 at that point, I think. This is in 2015. Uh, And the series then turned a lot. Um, You had, there was this incredible partnership between uh, Davidis and Amla where they both scored sort of a 250 ball 50s, uh, which was great, but also it was a a miracle that they managed to last that long. And and these pitches were kind of as bad as the ones in in the last test. And one of them was rated poor. Kohli kind of fumed after that, kind of saying like, you know, when we go to Africa and we get skittled, people say, how bad are India batting? When teams come here and they get skittled, they say, how bad are Indian pitches kind of thing. Um, so that was Cody kind of laying down a marker saying like, you know, we're not going to take this kind of thing. We're going to make the most of home advantage. However, maybe in reaction to the poor rating, the next two series they played were on decent pitches uh, and India, you know, clean sweat both of them, I think. Then Australia visited and it was the same kind of thing as that Stafka series. But again, you had the first test, uh, the pitch was rated poor, Australia won with the spinners doing the damage and it was a bit of a almost a lottery um and then even though the series the rest pitch in that series turned probably wasn't turning as much and after that you had India build up this incredibly dominant home record and also build up a sort of a a cabal of quicks who could kind of threaten anywhere in the world on pitches that kind of rewarded all types of cricket you could bat really big the quicks would be in the game uh, spinners would come into it. They, you know, they've been in it on day one. They might win the game on day five. Kohli uh, would average sixty with the bat. Bumrah exactly. twenty with the ball. There, there was yeah. a game in indoor uh, where the last test was played against Australia um, in 2019, where Quicks took something like thir- or 28 of the 35, 31 wickets of all or something, and India made 400 and they smashed. Okay, Bangladesh, but still by an innings. That was a mark of what happened. So what's changed since then is two things. One, England come and win on that sort of surface. And was it sorry a flat pitch? On a, yeah, on, yeah. On, on a flat pitch, Root makes a double hundred. Um, India can't get close, and 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 they lose the game. And I guess what you see there is how actually the toss can have quite a big impact on that sort of surface if the other team are capable of putting up a big total, because it means you can't really lose the game. And then actually, it can be quite hard to save it because of what the pitch turns into later on. And then we know what the pitches were like for the rest of the England series. The other thing that happened was that New Zealand drew a test in Kanpur. Uh, where they drew it nine wickets down the final day. And because of how the World of Championship point system works, Raul Dravid was talking about the, this yesterday, saying that you basically have to have results. Like it's, you know, it's better to lose a series 2-1 than to draw it nil-nil, I think, in terms of uh, points for the uh, for the World Test Championship. Uh, but but that's, that's, the kind of, that's the kind of equation that's mm. at play. Um, and those are the, the two things. One is that, and I guess the other sort of underlying thing is maybe India don't trust their batters quite as much on that kind of flatter surface. India used to think they could sort of outbat other teams. Now they maybe don't think that and they think, okay, we have to outspin them. So let's pick a pitch. Let's have a pitch that allows us to outspin a pit, outspin a team rather than outbat a team. But now where do they go from here? Because, you know, would this Australia team beat India on a on a flatter track? Maybe. Would they outbowl India on a seeming track? Maybe. And would a spinning track be a lottery as the second test as the third test was? Almost certainly. So I think that the test, the pitch for the fourth test will be fascinating, and also going forward, seeing how India choose to react to this in terms of the pitches will also be interesting. I think they must have been embarrassed, right? Really, and and the big hitters, Sharma, Dravid, Kohli, they must have been. And and yet the question is, how much control do they have? How much influence do they have? That's always been the assumption, right? That these huge icon figures lean down upon the curator and say, this is what we need. Uh, but I, I think the, re- the reality might be a little bit more complex than that, really, because you can't imagine a world where Sharma, who is a legacy player, or Kohli, who is an all-timer, or Dravid, who, whose heart beats for the game and who's very dignified and, and got great integrity, 
I can't imagine that they would have been at ease with this situation at all, right? But Rohit Sharma, didn't he say before they lost that third test, he said something like, oh, you know, if we if we win the next one, we might prepare a green seamer in in, in, in Ahmedabad. And I don't know how much of that's bluster, but, you know, it certainly gives the impression that they at least have a say in the preparation of these pitches. But you would be fuming, right? You'd be right. fuming that you can't score tons and that in a landmark home test series against what was billed beforehand as the best test side in the world traveling to India, one that could actually unseat India's home dominance. You would be absolutely fuming. Mm. Yeah, and I th- yeah, exactly. And I think if you prepare it, if you end up with a pitch as mucky as that last one, then it does make it almost a lottery. You know, Australia have got some half-decent finger spinners. India have obviously got some great finger spinners. But you are reducing the margins to such an extent that it is almost you're blindfolded and just chucking darts at the board and seeing who who ends up with mm. with the result at the end of it. And and that played out. That's what yeah. happened. So this strategically doesn't really add up is what I'm saying. Well, it, India have lost three tests at home on the last decade and two of them have been rated poor because they didn't allow for a balance between bat and ball, i.e. like even if you're really good at batting, you might just get out. And even if you're not that great at bowling, you might just mm. get some wickets. And was the other I'm game like, the arm with a bad third test match? No, it was the one that Australia won in. 2017. Oh yeah, the Pune, Pune game. Yeah. Yes, I, I completely agree with what you're saying on the pitch. I just, I, I do think the Australia spinners deserve quite a lot of credit because when it turns that much, it's actually quite hard to take wickets. You have to be quite clever with your angles. And Lyon, I thought it was brilliant in the second innings bowling around the wicket to right-handers. And I've said it on the ball before, but I just don't understand why off spinners don't bowl around the wicket as default. LBW's more in play, etc. But Kuhneman is, I think his nickname in state cricket is, is like, is, is Jadeja because he has quite a similar style of just kind of making subtle changes with his angle, bowling quite straight, bowling LBW into play. And Todd Murphy doesn't have quite as much action on the ball as Lyon does, but he doesn't go for anything. So as a trio, um, Australia have landed on a, a, a spin trio that works quite well together. It complements each other quite well, even though I don't think they planned that to be the case before the start of the series. Yeah, and we should give Australia quite a lot of credit here. I mean, I know Cathy said, if India don't make the World Championship final, it'll be because of the pitches. And I think Australia might think that they had something to do with it as well, I guess. Uh, um, and yeah, Lyon was brilliant. And I think the fact that it had inconsistent bounce also brought him into the game more because bounce is often one of his weapons. So if it's inconsistent, that can make it actually even more of a of a threat uh Kawaja batted absolutely brilliantly in the first innings made what 64 but that's worth you know 100 150 on a on a normal test wicket um and Travis Head I, so for that final morning I got I well I didn't mean to get up but I'd find myself up early uh and then was like well uh India have taken a wicket with the second ball of the day so I should pr- pr- probably watch this um and for quite a while in that chase thought that Australia would probably might well mess this up it felt actually a lot like um uh, Abu Dhabi exactly yeah where it was like hang on if Australia are going to chase this they're going to need 30 35 overs at the rate that they're going and India are going to create a lot of chances in that time uh, and then all of a sudden it was basically done because head just flicks a switch uh, starts sort of hitting the spinners around the park and the game is done inside the first hour really he played really really well obviously it makes it even more uh, incredible they didn't pick him for that first test because he's looked one of their their best players since then and I guess There'll also be a question over, I mean, he did it opening the batting and I imagine he'll open in the next test as well. And what will happen when David Warner recovers from that elbow injury, if Head will have made that spot his own or if they'll just go back to Warner opening with Kawaja and that, that top six they would have had inked in for the Ashes ahead of this series, I guess. Bit of news on the final test match. Pat Cummins will remain in Australia to be with his family for the final test. So Steve Smith will once more captain Australia in the final game. The Women's Premier League started over the weekend. We've had five matches at the time of recording, three team scores of 200 or more. We've had standout performances from familiar names. Harman Preet Core hit 65 off 30 in the first game. Shafali Verma scored a rapid 84 as well. But also some standout performances from names we might not have heard a lot about before. Um, USA left arm seamer Tara Norris, who plays her domestic cricket in the UK, to the first ever WPL Fifer. Um, the left arm spinner at Mumbai, Saika Ishak, who's not played for India yet, looks very good. She took four for 11 in the opening game. Katya, what have you made of the tournament so far? Yeah, well, it's been it's been good, hasn't it? I think that there have been lots of big scores, lots of 200 plus scores, and that's a great spectacle. But I'm sceptical how long 
that continues if the games aren't competitive because there's been very few close games, right? So it's great watching teams smash over 100. It's great from an Indian Indian audience perspective with the Harman Precourt, as you say, whacking it in the first game. But 200 and whatever plays 64 all out as it was in the first game. When you take the competition away, that kind of 200 plus score becomes quite not dull, but quite disengaging quite quickly. So it's been a really good start, but it would be nice to see some more competitive games of cricket as kind of my takeaway from the first few days of the competition bin, albeit having only giving it a few days to settle down and now criticising it. But yeah. <laughs> I, I do wonder if it, it is going to take time for analysts to work out how best to, which players to target and which players to value most highly in auctions. Um, it's a new pool of players. We don't know which, we don't know quite how good the domestic players are. We don't know how good the reserves are in Indian batting, seam bowling, spin bowling. So I can see it taking a while to get to a point where the teams are quite even. I mean, you still see it in, in men's franchise competitions that have been around for, for a decade. that There's still massive mismatches. So it's a quite a hard thing to get right. Yeah, well, it's like you say, one of the best things about franchise cricket as it's been is discovering someone who's completely unknown and is just absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, and adding that to the, w, the WPL once it's kind of settled down a little bit, that'll be probably the most compelling element of competition because it's like it's like you said we all are familiar with these names who are brilliant like Nat Siverbrunt who got 50 off not very much the other day and Harman Kaur and Alyssa Healy and all the rest but the really interesting part of it is going to be finding someone from the domestic scene like Tara Norris who no one knows really who comes and does something incredible and that'll be the main attraction or not the main attraction but that'll be one of the best things about the competition because we've been wanting that pathway for so many years and that kind of stage does offer that just i wanted to make a point on the tara norris thing which i think is is quite interesting from a a few points of view uh one is um about her future because she you know she showed she's 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 very skillful she's very talented uh i'd i'd wonder if she'll ever be if she'll be good enough to be established first choice for england um and she has ambitions to play for England. I think she said to you on the podcast a few years ago, actually, that um, so she plays for USA, but that doesn't affect her eligibility for England. So that could happen. But now when that chance maybe comes, I think she might be good enough to play a couple of games. And obviously that's how you maybe get into being first choice. But if she plays for England even once, that would sort of close off this door to her as getting this sort of, uh, you know, this, this, this fee each year. I also think that um, franchises might be looking at her success and thinking they missed a bit of a, a trick basically that there are other associate players around the world who you'd think would be a better bet than the you know the, the weakest domestic player in that squad the likes of you know the Bryces from Scotland or Stir Callis from the Netherlands or, or you know some of Thailand's players um, you wonder if they might actually look next year to 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 bring in to bring in that as well and then the other thing as well is if you're a, an English player at like a sort of uh, maybe a, a, a mid-level regional player, even you know, on the fringes of the hundred. Uh, whether you should be, you know, look, looking around the family tree to see if you've got any sort of a, you know, Scottish or or, or, or German or whatever ancestry, go and play uh, in a in a qualifier, and then you've actually got a, a decent route into you know the the biggest show in town, basically. Um, which I think would be great for associate associate cricket. Obviously, it, the end goal is to have pathways that produce their own talent that don't have to go looking to other systems and getting these things, but a route to getting the funding that allows you to do that is to have a team good enough to make an impact at a qualifying event. And that's what some of these players can do. I mean, you know, Tara Norris bowled really well to get USA to the global qualifier. I know they didn't, they didn't territories there and Norris wasn't available for that. Um, But that's the, that's the kind of thing that can open up some funding and that sort of thing. But just on that associate nation point, they, they introduced that rule in the WPL, right? I think from my understanding of it, you can have an extra overseas player if that player is from an associate nation but it doesn't seem like that's kind of gone far enough to get associate players into it like the gap between associate nations and full member nations is less in or in my opinion is less than in women's cricket than it is in men's cricket you know you had Nepal beating was it Pakistan in the Women's Asia Cup last year um and I don't think there are any Nepalese players in the WPL. I'm not entirely sure on that. No, Tar- Taranos is the only associate player yeah. that picked up. And actually, there was confusion at the auction over that rule. One of the franchises tried to pick up another US player, but they thought it was you could have an extra overseas player in the squad if they're an associate when it's just in the 11 that that counts. So that's the other thing is that you you do lose a squad space, I suppose, but still. Um, and yeah, in the tournament, I've I've really enjoyed it. I haven't, some people, have, there's been some questions over the the boundary sizes and therefore the high scores. I haven't minded that too much. I think it 
is good for, for for making a bit of a splash to see like I do think sixes being hit is is quite fun and I, I, I yeah the close games thing is an issue and you're more likely to get at close games if you have lower totals I suppose um but I've enjoyed it I've also enjoyed uh some of the reviewing of wise I think that has um the potential for some quite funny things to happen as well as it probably being a good move overall um so yeah I, th- I think it's I think it's been good I think it's been entertaining I don't think they could have hoped for for much more in terms of you know all the all the players you'd want to make runs would have made runs. Uh, Grace Harris was quite quite unlucky, wasn't she? She, she plays that brilliant innings in the first game. Uh, what did they chase? Was it was it seventy runs in the last five over, something like that? And she she drove the bulk of that, and then she was left out for the second game, uh, which is a uh, which is a bit unlucky. But yeah. Mm. Over the last week or so, the Cricket Discipline Commission hearing on the Yorkshire racism scandal has taken place. Uh, two and a half years on from Azim Rafiq's initial claims, the focus was essentially on whether or not Vaughan made the comment. There are too many of you lot to four players of Asian descent before a T20 game in 2009. Um, Katia, with all that's gone on over the last two and a half years, we've ended up with the focus on one comment that may or may not have happened 14 years ago. How, how has that happened? Michael Vaughan's the only one who's chosen to give evidence in his defence at the, the hearing. So Yorkshire and, and, and York, Yorkshire Cricket County Cricket Club as a whole have admitted um, the charges against them and decided not to give evidence in defence at the hearing. Uh, so is Gary Balance. Gary Balance has admitted um, the charges the ECB have brought against him and decided not to take part in the hearing. And, and the rest of them, so Tim Bresnan, Andrew Gale, and the others have uh, decided not to participate in the hearing because they don't think they'll get a fair hearing. Um, but yeah, it is, it is disappointing, I guess, that it's all turned into a dispute over one comment rather than structural change and the and the deep change that needs to happen in in light of these allegations it seems quite a superficial way to end the process even though it's not an ending it's billed as the ending to the specific allegations that Rafiq has made so it just feels inherently dissatisfying I guess that this is what it's come down to Mm. um over the one comment like you said The, the CDC normally adjudicate on on less serious matters behind closed doors and we, we have this like slightly bizarre situation where the public focus i mean this, this is on this is getting so much public attention this was on the on bbc news of the day where the where the public focus on one comment where one of the people alleging that the comment was made says they saw it as a just a bad joke at the time and then the person who says they haven't made the comment is saying that it's a an abhorrent thing to say whilst also admitting that they have tweeted things that they admit they have tweeted that are really bad. Ben, what do you make of it? There has been some stuff on the ECB process at various points. It isn't just on whether or not so-and-so said whatever. There's an element of me that wonders whether it has been helpful that this is public or not, that there's kind of just... It's it's a lot of it feels like running over old ground um, and just... I think the thing with the ECB investigation is that this was when what Mina Boutros, who's the ECB's head of legal, I think, uh, was quizzed on on the investigation, who they asked, who they hadn't asked. Uh, it turned out they hadn't asked the umpires. They hadn't been able to get in touch with all of the players at the game. They hadn't asked the Sky cameraman who was there, um, which I suppose on one face seems like a bit of a, you could even say, you know, a, a, a dereliction like it. They haven't gone to, you know, the, the extreme length they could have. Equally, when you look at, you know, the extent of all the charges, this is one of the more minor ones. And this isn't a, a, an organisation with, you know, limitless pockets that can, you know, you know spend like, like ages and ages and ages, like uh, querying every detail. Because also this is such a thing that's just not fit for purpose uh, to to investigate, if you know what I mean. Like this, as you say, this isn't what the CDC was was really set up to do or at least it's it's one of many things that falls under its remit and I can't imagine it was uh foreseen uh, or predicted when you know when when it, when it was created that it would have to l- look into something of this scale so I don't know if I have sympathy for the ECB exactly because if you're the sports governing body these are the kind of tricky situations that you will have to deal with occasionally um but yeah I, I guess the thing is is that this this won't be any sort of ending like I imagine uh uh well that there may well be appeals as well after it for one thing but also that 
in some ways, I guess it's necessary that you have to delve into individual things as much as the a lot of the talk has been, you know, this is about structures, this is about a culture that doesn't absolve people of individual things that they've done. And those do need to be investigated as well. And, you know, if it would be much worse if there was no sort of uh, uh, way to look into, you know, allegations of racism and to, and to come up with, you know, judgments of, 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 of guilty or not guilty, because, you know, this will this won't be the last CDC hearing on racism, I guess, unless they decide that there's another way of going forward altogether. Um, but this is not the the thing that should be focused on when, you know, well, the whole saga, I, I, maybe it won't sort of ever really end or conclude. But if you're looking at it right now, thinking like, what have we learned from, you know, the stuff that Azim has said, from the stuff that other players have said about the stuff that's happened at Yorkshire or other counties, uh, it should not focus on whether Michael Vaughan said this one thing or not and should focus on the the totality of how cricket views itself how cricket is welcoming to those who you know aren't white and you know don't have you know lots of money as well and that sort of thing uh that would be the better thing to focus on than to yeah the details of, of 14 years ago even though there is a certain necessity in going back over it just because individual responsibility is part of this too I guess. I think it's worth saying that the CDC are deciding this on the balance of probabilities rather than the higher legal standard of beyond reasonable doubt. It's a show trial right? This, how, this is increasingly how it feels and you two are bang on. I couldn't couldn't agree more that uh, these structural institutional reckonings that the game is slowly going through have been reduced to a what was said when and I don't want to denigrate the significance of those words but this has become about a former England captain which is one of the reasons why it is so far up the news because it's 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 an easy juicy thing for the press to get their teeth into but the real story is what happens imminently when the final report comes out from the Independent Commission for Equity in Cricket uh, and now this has been a report that's been prepared for a year and a half now, Cindy Butts, who has been, is the, she's the chair and she's been overseeing it. She was speaking in March last year. Already 4,000 people inside the game had reported their own experiences of, of discrimination. Over four, and this was a year ago. Well, yeah, yeah, literally a year ago. Over 4,000 at that point. We're still waiting for the final report to be, to be dropped and it will be imminent. It was due to be early this year. We're moving in further into the year, but it will be imminent. And when it does, the ugly and tawdry and very regrettable contents of this particular investigation or inquiry, they get moved well to the side because they are nothing compared to the scale of what we are as a game that I have to confront in due course. Uh, and it seems like the, like the Vaughan saga is a mere microcosm of the of the of the, the broader and bigger stories um there is also another unfortunate irony here in that as in Rafiq right from the start and people will disagree with this but it's my personal view that I believed him when he said he didn't want this to be about personalities he didn't want this to be about about individuals um and yet it's become that now or in this instance it's become that but his point Rafiq it seemed to me and he was consistent on this, has, has always been about structural institutional discrimination and problems. This is not about the sort of the muckraking of who's, who said what when, he said, she said stuff. This is about something more, far more structural than that. And, and it's a sort of, it's an unfortunate irony that this last week or so has ended up revolving around one person, effectively one person when the story is obviously so much faster than that. Yeah, there's not been as much public scrutiny on the structural questions. I, I remember we talked about it late last year when there was the second DCMS hearing and the MPs didn't really know what they were talking about, to be honest. They hadn't done their research. That There wasn't that much scrutiny on the governing bodies concerned, really. And that was that felt like a missed opportunity. Um so yeah, I think I think the big questions that pretty much everyone involved has wanted to keep at the forefront of the discussion haven't actually hasn't actually had the public forum for scrutiny um, in the way I think we assumed would happen. Uh, well, I think a year this report will will answer that. Mm. I think it will be unavoidable the findings because 
from what we gather and from what we already know from Cindy Butts. I mean, she said a year ago, all is not well with the game and it faces a reckoning. They're quotes straight from her. Um, and we know the numbers, as I've just said. So when this report finally lands, I think all of the the tentacles of the story that have been running for the last two years, they all get wound up into this overriding uh, headline um, and it won't won't make good reading because people, many thousands of people have felt excluded from the game. Mm. And this is what this report will tell us. Moving on, I've been quite distracted during this pod because on our screen we've had Aidan Markram batting. I think he's, he's just... He's just got out. Did you see how he got out? I no. did. Oh, no. like, batting like a dream. Spinner comes on, plays a little weird scoop, sweep, lobs up. And Blackwood runs around yeah, from first Yeah, runs around slip. from slip and, and, and sort of juggles and gets a dolly. Oh, what is he doing? That's, I mean, that, that's and he, and he doesn't get And he doesn't get his 100. No, that, that, that's, that's the Aiden Markham career in, in microcosm, isn't it? Mm. Cricket's difficult, though. Katia, his, his 100 last week was your moment of the week. Yeah, well, I, I feel cheated of that innings because I can't see past Phil's laptop, really. So. <laughs> um, yeah, no, um, really enjoyed his 100. He's had a difficult couple of years, I think it's fair to say, um, with Test cricket. Um, and then had a really, really good week last week, not only because of the Test 100, but he's now T20 captain for South Africa as well. Um, but yeah, it was brilliant. And as we've said, he's so, so good to watch when he gets going and his, his cover drive rivals everyone in the game. And as we know, having a good cover drive is everything mm. um, in cricket. You mentioned David Milan as an enigma earlier on. I feel like Mark Rum kind of fits under a similar category. Um, ever since he captained that under-19 South Africa side to win the World Cup, um, he's been billed as South Africa's saviour and, you know, South Africa's answer to the big four um, and never really delivered on that promise. He got, I think he was run out by Dean Algar in his first test match on 97 um, and then scored 100 in his second test match, at which point he was, you know, the second coming pretty much. And and South Africa's saviour, as I've already said, um, but when he came to England last year, he hadn't scored a centre. He'd scored one century, I think, since 2018. Um and I think he's, I think it's a fairly common thought that he's been given too much responsibility and borne that burden too early. I think when he captained that ODI series in, in South Africa against Australia and against India in 2018, the stat was that he'd got two ODI caps and the rest of the side had over 800 between them. But he was dropped down to three uh, when they went to New Zealand, I think beginning of 2022, uh, didn't score any runs, dropped down to four in England, didn't score any runs in the first two tests and then was dropped for the, the, the match here at the Oval. I think it's hard to argue not deservedly so. Um, he hadn't scored any runs and that is what it's all about. But it really, it did him a favour because it meant he didn't go to Australia uh, where no one in South Africa's side scored runs. Um, but new captain, new coach, test side, and he's back and he scores 100, so it's a bit of a fairy tale stuff at his home ground as well. Mm. Um, looked good while doing it. Um, great week, lovely stuff. I think the, the thing is about him, of all of South Africa's problems, I think he's quite low down on the list. And it, he, it's hard to argue that he shouldn't have been dropped, but when he's scoring runs, there's very few better. And South Africa have a lot else to look at other than Aidan Markram doesn't score a century for a while. Uh, some of it flows as well from what happened in their T20 tournament. Because you're bang on. I mean, he had a stinker of a year. He had a stinker of maybe three years. But he came into that tournament as the skipper of the Orange team, whichever one they were called, the Sunrisers, the something Sunrisers or, or other, and played really well, made a brilliant 100, I think, in the semi final of it maybe yeah. and then made a few I think in the final as well but either way he was playing really well and that 100 they were 10 for 2 8 for 2 I think they were and then he made a brilliant 50 odd ball 100 and I remember watching that live and he was almost in tears when he made the runs because it was one of those cathartic moments that you get in in cricket in particular when finally you have a day where you can enjoy yourself. Finally, mm. you can have a day where you can just sleep eight hours at the end of it. Uh, and I think a lot of what you've seen since has sort of flowed from that, really. I think that's, that tournament sort of liberated him and put him back in the centre center stage of South African cricket. Uh, and now you're seeing, as Katia says, I mean, you know, when he's in form, he's, he's a great player to watch. Uh, I still, I've always, we've been saying for years, right, on Mark Room, he's, he's, he's the best bad player in the world, right? Uh, and I, I ask you all the time, has he got any runs yet? Has he got any runs yet? And finally, um, he, he is. He, he's also going to be captain of the Orange team in the IPL as well. He's is gonna, he? Yeah, he's going to be Sunrise. So he was, under, he was 
under-19s captain South Africa as well, mm. bright bloke, well-educated, etc. So that's why they've always thrown a lot onto his shoulders. But you've got to score runs at the same time, <laughs> and he's he's still what, only probably 25, 26. So. No, he's 28. That, that's is kind he really? Of, yeah, that's oh, kind right. of part, part of it. Is I think that, that, that's the thing, he's, yeah. He's is not that young anymore. They, they had stuck with him for so long, and obviously we can all see the talent and... It, there was a sense that he was worth sticking with, and you yet, had dropped him a thousand times ago. No, no, I mean, I strung him up, I, but I think he also becomes especially important because this is a, a South Africa set up in a certain amount of flux, as Katia alludes to, with uh, two new coaches, right, for the for the various formats. Um, and apart from, I know they won the, the first test handsomely, but it there's a, just it feels like there's some odd stuff going on, basically, and and the the, the new coaches finding their their feet finding what the the best team they have is they made four changes from that game only one of which was enforced by the injury to Anrik, Anrik Norkia so they have dropped uh, Keegan Peterson who you like Phil but they've picked Ryan Rickleton who you also like so uh, why, I, why I, I, I don't think? particularly like Keegan Peterson I do not no okay. all right no, uh, Phil, I, Phil hates Keegan Peterson exclusively no I, I didn't I, I thought he was it was asking a lot of him to bat three okay. in England and I said that at the time it, I know you, he played oh, okay against India you, you like, we, we all like I like, I like to watch him yeah, I yeah. just uh, Okay. We can, you want to go back through the shows? <laughs> I, I thought it was a big ask for him to bat three in England, yeah. and, and that, so it proved. But that's, so the new coach has dropped him one game into the new regime. Pick Ryan Rickleton. They've also having picked centre as a batter, just as a straightforward batter. Rickleton. Uh, who's that? Rickleton. Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. obviously he keeps as well. Yeah, but, but they still got uh, Clarkson playing this game. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they've also so they had Sinner and Muthasami as their only spinner in the last test. He's a bit of an all rounder, but they've left him out and picked two spinners. So he's now not in their best two spinners, having sort of been their best spinner last week. Maharaj and Harm has come back in. Maharaj wasn't in the side last week. They've also either rested or dropped Janssen and picked Wian Mulder instead. So maybe they're just seeing this as a bit of a free hit. Let's do some fact-finding. Uh, there is the no the way they have picked Wian Mulder over Mark well, Janssen. Yeah, there is they, no way. But, but then, you know, when, Don't when, try and logic it. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I think just last thing on Markram, it's not that he scored a century and a 50 and now everything's rosy. He averages 22 away from home. Mm. There's still significant questions for him to answer, but he's at least bought himself some time at the top of that South Africa lineup. Mm. And it's also worth noting that him and Dean Elgar have quite a good relationship. They've played domestic cricket together. Dean Elgar has spoken highly of him a lot. Um, and has said openly that he enjoys batting with Markram. So there's something to be said for also keeping Dean Elgar happy and having a harmonious opening partnership, I guess. Ben, finally, your moment of the week, Shaheen Afridi batting six. What what the hell's going on there? I saw he wrote about this. Mm. Wrote, wrote a whole article on this. Just just a little short one. Just uh but yeah, I mean it was it was it was fun. I mean he uh, He's done it twice in the second time he got a fifty. Yeah. You better write another one. <laughs> well, no, that that was that was after I wrote it. But yeah, so that's what I mean. So what, what's going on here? So both <laughs> both times. That's what I'm trying to ask you. But both times, uh, his side Lahore Kalanders were four down inside the power play. So he's it's a specific situation in which he is promoting himself. I think if you look at the scorecards, you'd think he is kind of almost like a pinch blocker. Like he's coming up to see out a difficult period of bowling to save uh, innings for the later end. It, it, yesterday he was one off nine at one point and the first game he was 16 or 16 if you actually watched it he's kind of swinging off his feet every ball um and it was just he happened to, to be missing them quite a lot and then yesterday he, after he had his iron he batted really really well went to a 50 i think he went from one to 50 off like 25 26 balls i think and hit five six in the end of his innings but like it was a decent innings you'd look and say that they lost the game and lost it reasonably comfortably in the end but they're chasing over 200 most of the times if you're four down the power play chasing 200 you lose they actually kind of almost got close and they had any right to uh by the time Razit is brilliant in the death and I think that's the main thing is they're trying to preserve him for that phase um and he did play very well and they needed what 40 odd off the last 13 which is just about doable and you take it if you're four down the power play chasing over 200 and, and Razit I think went 10 off three straight away exactly so, yeah. yeah so so and then the first game they were four down Raza came in a bit later made 70 or 34 he was the hero of the game but they won that again you don't often win games when you fall in the power play so I quite like it as a move uh, and he's captained quite well I mean that team is top of the table um, and then the other uh, good thing the PSL has been is, is Lambad United and uh, who've got a habit of of chasing big scores and quite exciting ways Azam Khan has had a very good season uh he's a really fun player to watch he's the, the son of Moeen Khan uh former Pakistan wicketkeeper batter and he plays a, a sweep shot off the quicks that's exactly like Moeen Khan used to play except almost better because he can do it to sort of these wide Yorkers that you just sort of just a little flick and it's off over 
uh, off over square leg. There was a wide Yorker in their win yesterday, which was dealt with in a different fashion. Uh, did you did you see this, Phil? I imagine you didn't. I did see it. You did see it, you, yeah. Was it you lot who stuck it on, on the Twitters? Yeah, yeah. So Just, that six over sort of fine third third. Yeah. And he's only gone to do it at the very last second, mm. twisted the bat in his hands. It was this was Fahim Ashraf, yeah. Sorry, Fahim Ashraf. Yeah, did this, yeah. That was a that was an all time freak shot. Yeah, and but yeah, this, this I, is a, I, 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 I literally don't think I've seen a shot quite the, like that. The, the, the only thing about it you're going to say, so it yeah. was uh, it was entirely telegraph what was going to happen. So the ball before, so the first ball was way wide, and if it actually pitched before it had reached the crease, it would have been a no ball. But because it didn't, it was just a wide. Uh, then the Next ball was another, a very, very good wide Yorker that he goes sort of lap into the leg side, gets an under edge that goes for four. And then you see Mohamed Rizwan say very, very clearly, like, don't worry, that was the right ball, do the same thing again. So Fahim Ashraf's like, oh, okay. <laughs> I think I know what's going to happen here. Uh, sets himself for it and just, yeah, the little flick over. So The execution was excellent. Yeah. Um, um, the, and the one and thing, they won that game. The one thing that's quite funny about Afridi, this, is his, this PSL is his first... Uh, cricket tournament since he got married to the daughter of Shahida Freedy. So he's really taking on the family responsibility of being a middle order yeah. biffer. No no wedding um, night advice, but saying, look, 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 son, you've got you got to bat six and you've got to hit some sixes if you if you wanna if you wanna be a true member of the Afridi clan. And on that note, that is all we have time for on today's show. Cheers Katia, cheers Phil, cheers Ben. This has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. We'll be back next week. Podcast Network.